We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. What is up, Nets fans? Welcome to the Brooklyn Buzz. I'm Nick Faye. With me as always, Jack Manuel. Jack, how are we doing? Nick, we meet again. The Philadelphia 76ers, four yes. years later. You know, it's playoff basketball. We're happy about it. You know, maybe this isn't the group we anticipated going into the postseason with the Nets when the year started, but we're here. And there's going to be a matchup to preview. We're going to jump into that and plenty more. Make sure you check the buzz on all streaming platforms. But, Jack, I guess let's start by looking back at what we learned from their matchup this season. And lucky enough, we actually have a matchup with this Nets roster against this Sixers team rather than just, you know, the Kyrie and Katie Nets. This is actually the Mikel Bridges Nets versus Sixers. It was, you know, I believe their first game together as a team. But there were some positives to take away. Yeah, the Nets only just went down, and if it weren't for the buzzer, you know, yeah. Spencer Dimwitty had that shot off that did end up going in another 0.2, 0.3 of a second. You know, we and, and getting back to that recap, the the guy messed up in the arena with the shot clock. I mean, with yeah, the timer. I remember I was getting really frustrated at that. So, but ultimately, I think you know it was a a nice little showing despite the the lack of cohesion and chemistry that you, you've got from five essentially new guys playing together. And the defense looked as good in that game as maybe like any other performance, you know, in a, in a lot of stretches. There was just not a lot of schemes and stuff, but more just instinct stuff of like double Joel here, push him back a little bit here, you know, force the rotations here. And, and Mikhail was sort of just roaming a lot. And I think that, he was just insane defensively. You know, he, he put up like, a, I think, 23 or something. But I think we got a few things out of that where the Nets were like, okay, maybe we, we don't match up too poorly against them. But, you know, obviously it's going to come down to Joel Embiid and, and stopping him or maybe not because a lot of people when I put out, I think it's a question worth discussing, um, is it uh, the game plan about stopping Joel Embiid? We'll, we'll have a dive into that. But how did you feel about that matchup? What did you take away from it? Yeah, I had actually the same thoughts, you know, thinking back to that game. That was probably one of their best defensive rotation games. You know, it just felt very natural. You know, another game that comes to mind is the Denver Nuggets, ironically enough, against two of the best bigs in the NBA. So maybe there's something to take away from there. I think the biggest negative takeaway from that game, the Sixers ended the game on a 14 to 2 run. And that kind of just screams how bad the clutch offense was. And, you know, that's a new team, but that's also an issue we've seen from the Nets over the course of the last month of the season. They're just having a hard time getting buckets late in games, given the personnel they currently have and their experience together. Yeah, the, the generating high quality offense is something that we talked about quite a bit in terms of what the how the Nets are going to be able to do that. You know, putting the ball in Mikhail's hands a little bit more, Spencer not dribbling, you know, the the air out of the basketball. In saying that, Nick, I've just quickly, as you've sort of alluded to it, the Nets' offensive rating in the clutch is actually not too bad. They have a 114.5 offensive rating in the clutch and a net rating of 4.1. That is wholly surprising to me. You know, only the Kings, the Jazz, the Lakers, and the Clippers are above the Nets in terms of their clutch offensive rating. So there's a nice little surprise. What is the t the sample size in terms of time for that? Ah, uh, yeah. So let me put it back to February 11, because I think that was the first yep. game. That, yep, February 11. So 
while I do that, you talk a little bit about Joe Harris, I think, like, was really hot from three in that game as well. Six of nine from three, I believe, in that one. And Could you see him playing a role at all against the Sixers? Because we know the last time that we took on them in the postseason, Joe, the lights were bright. And when the lights are bright, Joe doesn't like it. He's like a deer in headlights. Yeah, I, I think that there is potential. You know, he's had two good playoff series, I guess. The one against Toronto in the bubble wasn't bad. He ended up leaving early because of a death in the family. And then that Boston series, um, not last season, the season prior, you know, he had some huge games. I think he had a, a first quarter where he hit five threes. I think it's going to be huge for someone to step up. We know Royce O'Neal is going to give the net something off the bench, but after that, it's a question mark. Is it going to be Joe Harris? Is it going to be Seth Curry? Is it going to be uh, Watanabe? Is it going to be Dayron Sharp? Who's going to be that guy that can give them some good minutes off the bench? Because you're going to stick to, you know, six, seven guys, but there's going to be spots for guys to step up. And are they going to do it? That's the biggest question. Yeah, I think when we get into X factors, I'll have a, a few thoughts on some of the players that you just mentioned there. And Nick, thank you for telling me to do it back to February 11 because uh, it ain't good from yeah. there, mate. It is not good. The Nets are 29th in offensive rating with a 92.3 offensive rating, a 121.8 defensive rating for minus 29.5, which I think is the worst in the NBA, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry, second worst. Only the Portland Trailblazers are worse. So... Yeah, the Nets have sucked in the clutch since uh, the the new iteration of the Nets have been assembled. Yeah, and it's kind of amazing how ridiculously good they were in the clutch prior. And it was still able to withhold all of this negative play for the last couple months of the season. And I think it's a real issue. And we see a, a similar thing happen a lot. It's Spencer doing what he's running a pick and roll. They trap him. He takes a little bit too long to get out of that trap. And then the next guy is making a pass or just looks kind of like a deer in the headlights, like you mentioned with Joe Harris. It feels like guys are just nervous in that fourth quarter in the last couple minutes. And I think some of that's, you know, as I mentioned, personnel, some of that's coaching, and some of that's just like guys needing to step up and be that dude. You know, we've seen different games where Mikel Bridges was able to step up and get those buckets late. You know, I think to that Miami, Miami Heat game where he dropped 45 points, he just was able to kind of isolate and find his groove. I think it'll be interesting to see how they defend Mikel, and that'll be something we talk about later, but there might be opportunities for him to step up in the clutch. Yeah, I think that the Nets, I, I spoke about, I can't remember if it was on the solo episode I did last or the one before I did with you, in terms of clutch shots, and Spencer did when he leads the team in 2.2, that might have changed as of late after the last couple of games, and Cam Johnson has one, and Mikel Bridges has 0.9. So in those final five minutes, get the ball in Mikel Bridges' hands a little bit more, and just create a little bit of more offensive diversity. You know, Make yourself a, a little bit more unpredictable, and I think that we'll speak about that when it comes to matchups as well, but... Any other things, Nick, from that game before we get to some of the storylines to look for? Yeah, I think at one point, at one hand, you take stuff away from that game. On the other hand, you don't really take a ton away, given, you know, it was the first time this group was together. I think the Sixers are a better team, and that wasn't necessarily their best performance as well. No, I, I think it's you take as much away you take a lot more away from it than the the final game but the, the that iteration of the nets isn't what the nets are now mikhail has improved out of sight in the sort of 30 games or so he played since then and also you know Joel Embiid was not the bona fide MVP contender best player in the league for for this season so he's obviously improved James Harden might have taken a step back we'll we'll dive into that when it comes to storylines and matchups yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, you said Joel Embiid. It felt like at points in that game, the Nets did a decent job of slowing him down, and he still finished that game, I believe, with 37 points. On 12 of 18 <laughs> shooting. And look, and we'll get to the matchups because I, I thankfully was uh, able to find some articles that pro provided some nice deep dives on the matchup between Embiid and Clack. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But Nick, what are your top storylines and why is it not Mikhail Bridges being drafted by the Sixers and defeating the team that didn't actually draft him? I've seen that so many times already. It is technically his hometown, Philadelphia, and his mom worked for the Sixers at the time. I don't know if she still does. I think that is a storyline, but I think the bigger storyline is more so Mikhail leading a playoff team. You know, I think this will kind of give us a, at least a little bit of a, a sample size of what it looks like for him in the postseason as being a lead contributor or potentially, you know, the lead player, the best player on a playoff team, as we've talked about over the course of the last month of the season, it's different basketball, the way that it's officiated, the way that it's played, the intensity, everything is kind of turned up by 10. And it's going to be really intriguing to see how Mikel reacts. And 
just based off of his personality and the way he's answered questions, it feels we feel pretty good about what he can do. And hopefully he really shines. Yeah, look, the the lights are going to be bright. And I think, you know, Mikael Bruce is going to get a nice tan because he's going <laughs> to relish. Like in, he's going to relish this shit, man. Like, I, I look, he might have his inconsistencies. He might have his poor shooting nights, but. I think that he'll still, despite, you know, there's been nights, you know, the, the little mini stretch that we discussed on, on the last episode we did together, I still have confidence in Mikhail to be able to put up 25, you know, get to the line eight or nine times, hopefully hit that three ball, hopefully get the midi going, hopefully rebound well and play solid defense on whether it's James or Tyrese or if he's roaming on, on PJ or Tobias. So I think he's going to have a, a large burden of responsibility. He's got a lot of work to do. He did well in that first little mini matchup we alluded to on February 11. Uh, I'm excited to see what he can do now we are in, you know, the big boy time. Yeah, and in that game, you actually had an opportunity to, I believe, give the Nets either the tie or the lead and miss that shot. So I'm sure yeah, that's that something. layup. Yeah, and that's one we've seen him hit now, you know, 25 times in a Nets jersey. So it's going to be intriguing to see how he can kind of attack the matchup as well. You know, when we get into matchups, we'll kind of break down ways that he can be really efficient. I think... You know, another obvious storyline is going to be James Harden against the Nets. You know, Harden obviously requested the trade. We know all of that. And the Nets didn't seem too happy about it. There's not a ton of guys that are still on the roster that played with James Harden. But at the end of the day, there's still some negative vibes, definitely from the fan base at, at the least. No, there's certainly a, there quite a few. And, you know, he spoke to the media after the game about that. That was the big storyline from that game. Him sort of saying, you know, you sort of see why I left. And it's just like, come on, man. Like, what are we really talking about here? Like, it's... And if you got something to say, say it. Like, don't beat around the bush. Like, if you you left for a reason, tell us why you left. You know, is it Kyrie Irving or is it the organization? Like, say what you want to say. Don't, don't. I, I just hate kind of just the way he went about it. Yeah, I think the whole we, – we discussed that upon his departure. We don't need to rehash that. If you yep. want to rehash it, some great episodes that Nick and I did for the buzz. But, look, I am severely hoping that we get, like, a, a Cam Johnson steal and slam like we saw in that game or yep. Mikhail Bridges locking his ass up or Clack shutting his you – know, they've been pretty close in the past, especially in the offseason, locking his ass down. Like, those moments are going to mean that a little bit more because – Look, you know, Schadenfreude, I, I, I want to see him fail. I want him to see him fail. You know, he, when was the last time we saw a James Harden masterclass in the postseason? Now, look, obviously, he's had his games here and there when they don't matter, like the game ones. But in the game sevens and when the, the lights get brighter, he turns into Joe Harris. Like, he's just, he's not a postseason performer. Now, I'm probably going to be forced to eat my words, like, you know, when we speak about Andre Drummond and Al Horford and these sort of guys. But... Stuff it. I'm putting it out there. I want James Harden to be pitiful in this series, and I'm going to lap it up, and I'm going to throw it all out on Twitter and get all of his stands in my mentions because there's something about his departure that you know felt that irked me the wrong way, and he hasn't been performing that well. So Joel Embiid's like genuine star run and solidifying MVP campaign has stolen the spotlight, but. James is starting to look like his age is starting to actually have an effect on him. His scoring has dropped off, and look, we can get into the the matchups in a little bit. But if you force him to be a scorer, then I think the Nets can have a, a better time of it. You know, put the keep the ball in his hands and keep it out of Joel Embiid's hands. Force and and look again. We'll discuss that in a little bit. But man, I'm. I will relish if James Harden like has a, a game tying shot and he misses it. Um, I'll, I'll just I want all of the bad things for James Harden in this series. Barring an injury, I'm not that kind of guy. I want him to just get locked the f up by all of our awesome defensive players, and I want them to just shoot on him, and I want him to just be silenced and cut that beard because he's going to be crying into it. Yeah, I'd love to see the mental mistakes, you know, thinking back to when he was still in the Nets and he had that weird turnover against the Pistons where he just wasn't fully locked in. And he's just the type of guy that can run out of mental stamina and can get really frustrated. And I think that goes to the pressure that's on Philly in the series and the pressure on Philadelphia for this postseason run. And not to say that, you know, the Nets are going to win the series. We'll give her predictions later. But if the Nets can make it hard on Philly and even force this six or seven, then there just becomes this fear and they start to kind of question their confidence as they go deeper in the playoffs potentially as well. So I think, you know, the Nets to an extent are playing with house money. They really just need to win one playoff game and they'll have a more successful season than last year. And Philly, on the other hand, reports came out today that 
if Philly doesn't get to the Eastern Conference Finals, you know, big changes are going to happen in Philadelphia. So that, that's not great for them. And that's a lot of pressure on Doc Rivers, James Harden, Joel Embiid, all these different guys need to perform well, where the Nets are just kind of going into it like, hey, let's just play our best basketball. and We can build off of this moving forward. Yeah, there's a freedom and positivity that comes with that, with, with yep. that expectation. And you alluded to the names there. Doc Rivers as a playoff sort of coach. Oh, okay. James Harden as a playoff performer. Uh, at Joel Embiid. Look, I, I I think Joel Embiid's got a, a lot of you know criticism for some of his playoff games. I think he's this is a new version of Joel Embiid, so I'm not going to analyze what he is now. But analyzing the current iterations of Doc Rivers, you know, relying so heavily on 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 Joel Embiid to sort of get you know, on both sides of the floor. You know, PJ Tucker has to hit his threes, and he continues to age. So uh, there is all of the the pressure on the Philadelphia 76ers, but they also have way more talent and they should win this series in four or five. That That's the expectations that I've seen everywhere. The Nets can steal this series. It's it's almost like a championship for us. Yeah, I mean, it's just a lot. It, like they're in a contending window, you know, and obviously James Harden is a free agent this upcoming summer and that could have a huge impact. There's rumblings that we've heard over the course of the year that maybe this is the summer Joel Embiid requests a trade if things go really sour here. Doc Rivers is definitely fired if things go bad. So it's just a lot on their plate and not to say that they're not the better team and the more talented team and the more proven team, but pressure does some things to people, especially James Harden, which we've seen over the course of his postseason career. Yeah, upsets can happen. That's what sport is. Storylines, narratives can happen where they get thrown out the window. You know, the the script can be rewritten, and we'll see how it does go. It's it's very unlikely. You know, the odds are are certainly stacked against the Nets, but you know that this team is a is a team that seems to sort of relish on that underdog sort of mentality. And I know we've sort of you know been relishing around it as well, Nick. But we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dom- Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The other sort of one I wanted to touch on in, in, in a decent extent is I threw this out on Twitter and I didn't expect the the response that I got is how the Nets going to handle Joel Embiid and this can we can touch on this in matchups we can touch on it now but I had a lot of responses including yourself Nick in terms of the differing analysis on how to stop slash limit Joel Embiid is is that a, a, should that fit into the storyline do you want to talk about that in the matchups where do you want to go with it yeah we can jump into it now I think it's it almost checks the box for storyline strength versus weaknesses and matchups. It's kind of a, a just an, you know, all part thing. And I think looking at Joel Embiid and he's so good, like 
Joel Embiid is arguably the best player in the NBA. Like he's that good. He's just a generational talent. And I think the biggest thing for him in his postseason career is really just staying healthy and not to say, I hope he gets injured, but that's going to be something to kind of keep an eye on. You know, he's had all these kind of weird injuries that have slowed him down. I think if I'm Jock Vaughn, I'm the coaching staff, the way I'm looking at this matchup, I know I do not have anybody on this roster that can shut down Joel Embiid one-on-one. I don't think there's anybody in the NBA that can do that. So my goal here would be variation. And I'm talking about variation in the game, but I'm also talking variation game to game. You just want to do everything you can to keep the Sixers guessing and keep in Joel Embiid guessing. And it's also just not Joel Embiid because it's the placement of the other players on the floor. How are they going to react to these different traps and double teams that you're throwing at Joel? Like you're coming from different angles. And now the outlet that was there on the previous two possessions is not there. Now that split second is a difference between free throws, a bucket and a wide open three or a turnover. And I think that's really where it becomes a mental challenge and a coaching challenge. And this is, you know, as much of an issue we've given Jock Vaughn over the course of the last couple of months, if he can come up with an incredible game plan to limit Joel Embiid, make his life as difficult as possible or force other Sixers to beat them, that's going to be huge. So I think it's almost a combination of Vaughn versus Embiid to an extent. Yeah, and look, your response was great. I had five or six other ones, and I, I think that I want to touch on them a little bit. But in, in saying that, in the last matchup, what I saw towards the end of the game in, in the clutch was the positioning of Wedgel and B was getting the ball. And I don't know whether that was him not forcing hard enough to get deeper into the post, but he was getting it like high, high post, like 20, 22 feet out. Now, if Joel B's getting the ball there, give him those entry passes. Like just, and then you can easily shade him and double him, and it forced the ball out of his hands and forced him to make a tough long two, which is the probably best shot that you're going to, you know, force him to sort of take or force the ball out of his hands and make him become a passer. So, they can take a few things away from that, but it's going to also be about, you know, Embiid's, you know, engagement levels, physical and mental, because as you alluded to, he's had these niggling sort of things where he sort of said to the media, he's like, well, I should probably be taking a couple of weeks off, but, you know, I can't. So does that start to catch up with him? Because in postseason's past, it has. So the physical and mental battle for Joel Embiid individually and, you know, the, the heavy burden that will be on him to lead this franchise to some sort of promised land is going to be massive. We spoke about Harden and Doc Rivers. That's sort of their ancillary in, into what Joel Embiid is, the, the face of the process, the face of this franchise. So there's going to be a lot on him. I, I expect him to perform pretty goddamn highly, but also want to get into some of my favorite responses to, to the tweet that I put out. And a lot of people are sort of saying, you know, start clacks on him and then switch with, with um, DFS when they're doing the hard and Joel Embiid pick and roll. That was from NMZ on Twitter. I, I thought that was a, a nice little interesting wrinkle because I think I like DFS as a short, stronger, bigger guy. Uh, from 2-1 on Twitter, he said, double Embiid as soon as he catches the ball. When he drives wall up on the pick and roll, make Harden be aggressive and take away wide open Joel Embiid mid-ranges. Put your longest defender outside of Klax on Tucker. So Embiid has a tougher time making those passes. So whether that's Mikhail, whether that's DFS, you could probably do that a, a little bit of both. Uh, from Rotel on Twitter, he says, got to get running and tie drill and beat out. Yep. I make him do everything on both ends. So make him a two-way player. Make the burden on him. Spencer drive relentlessly at him. Mikhail drive relentlessly at him. Clax keep running using your conditioning. Because I think Clax's conditioning might be better than Joel Embiid's, which is something I don't think I would have said You know, at the start of the year. Um, that's how you wear him down. From DJ on Twitter, he said... Let him get his. This is sort of what you sort of alluded to a little bit, Nick. Focus on neutralizing Maxi, Melton, and Harden. It's always going to get his regardless, so you might as well go in and stopping everyone else. Uh, from Brooklyn, that's 85. Lots of doubling. Make Harden a scorer. Make Tobias and PJ make plays with the catch. Don't let Maxi get hot off ball from three. He's not as scary as a primary ball handler. And then finally from KC, double the F out of him. Let him go one-on-one -on -one for the majority of the game. He's going to get 15-plus three throws. Hard doubles, rotates behind it, make guys like PJ and Tobias beat late closeouts rotations. I like the length we have to cover ground behind the doubles. So uh, all of those things, is there anything that sort of sticks out to you? Yeah, I think you do them all. I think that's really the key is I think you do all those defenses so he never gets comfortable. And I think especially going to the one DJ mentioned where letting him cook, I think you can do a, you know, a scenario where – you double him and you put him in all these weird scenarios for a lot of the game. And then all of a sudden for a stretch, you just give him a little bit of one-on-one -on -one and now he's feeling like the double team is going to come and he's second guessing himself. And Clax doesn't have, 
you know, the physicality to match with him, but he does have the speed and the length to disrupt him. And we've seen him do that at times, especially like you mentioned, when he catches the ball and not on the block, you know, when he's in that more of that mid range area, you know, Clax has even got a couple good blocks on him, some good contests. And I think also another great point in there too, was the mental stamina and the physical stamina, you know, run as much as you can make him move defensively. And there's always a chance you can get him in foul trouble. You know, he does a pretty good job of staying out of that, but he's also a guy that we've seen get frustrated in the past, a la elbowing Jared Allen in the face. Like he's yeah. a guy that can lose his composure. Not not to say he's the same player he was then, but I think there's just a way for the Nets to get under their skin and not just James Harden. I think Joel Embiid can be frustrated as well. And I think it's such a luxury for the Nets defensively that PJ Tucker's on the other side. He's just not a gifted offensive player. I saw some crazy stats about his offensive impact this season, and it wasn't very good. And, you know, if he's not shooting a corner three, he's not really doing anything. Yeah, and that's where the sort of what we allude to with, you know, and what we saw a little bit in the sort of closing moments, the, the closing quarter of that February 11 matchup where Mikhail was just roaming like a madman. And he was just yep. sort of like, you know what? I'll double him here and then force the ball out of his hands. You know what? I'll do the late double at him where there's five seconds to go and force someone else to sort of make the, because Clax has got him a little bit here. So I think just letting the guys sort of read the, the game a little bit. A, a couple of people sort of say play a little bit of zone as well, which I think, you know, the Nets have played somewhat, but I don't think they're playing it with their starting five. I don't think it, it, it plays into their hands a little bit, but I think that that's a wrinkle you can have up your sleeve because I don't think the Sixers are that great of a three-point shooting yep. team. Tyrese Maxey is the one that sort of sticks out. James Harden, when he's got it going and, and has a and rhythm. And even Harden's certainly. not a great spot-up shooter. He's more of that pull-up no. guy, step-back yeah. guy. And in terms of Embiid versus Clax, I was able to find some data on him. In the first matchup in January 25, Clax had his way with him. You know, in the minutes that, that Joel Embiid was matched up with Nick Claxton, he only had nine points on three of ten shooting. Now, in the next matchup, it didn't go as well as that, to, to put it lightly. So they were matched up for 73% of the time with Nick Claxton and Joel Embiid on defense. And he was 7-11 from the field for 63.6% uh, of field goal percentage. And I think it was like 17 points or something like that. So, look, you're going to get your, your good and your bad. It's going to be about, the when it comes to the superstars, the nature of it. Uh, if we get somewhere in between the January 25 and the February 11 matchup, that's probably what you're aiming for, somewhere around that 40 to 50% mark and just making life tough for him rather than sort of just the ease and the ability to get to the free throw line. He got two free throws uh, on, on Claxton that time, so that's not a hate, to, to be honest. So, yeah, that's just something to sort of keep in mind because they've had their way a little bit. Jordan Bates certainly has the 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 weight and the heft. He's got like 60, 65 pounds on Clax. But at the same time, Clax has been pretty goddamn good. So it's going to be not just up to Clax to sort of take care of business when it comes to the likely MVP. It's going to be a team effort. Yeah, for sure. And that gets me to kind of my next point, and, and that's Joel Embiid on the boards. You know, obviously, as you mentioned, just a giant human has a ton of size, and I think this kind of gets in the strength and weaknesses, and it's going to be the Nets rebounding against Joel Embiid. And that's just not on Clax. That's on all five guys on the floor. And this is a scenario where we cannot have – you know, two guys standing at top of the key waiting for the ball to come down. Like everyone has to attack and be aggressive because even so they have some other guys with girth that aren't necessarily great rebounders, but they could have an impact in the series and Tobias Harris and PJ Tucker. You know, we've seen PJ Tucker kind of sneak in and get some of those rebounds, even though he can't really do much with it. It's just an extra possession for a team that's able to generate good looks in the half court because of James Harden, Joel Embiid. Yeah, funnily enough, Nick, you know, in that last game, the one we've been talking about, the Nets actually won the rebounding battle 42 to 41. And that was because of team rebounding. Dorian Finney-Smith, eight. Cam Johnson, seven. Mikael Bridges, six. Nick Claxton only had the five, but Spencer Dinwiddie had the six. So yeah. it's all those guys chipping in, and then Royce O'Neal as well chipping in for four. Whereas it was essentially Jill Embiid with 13, James Harden to a lesser extent with six, and Tobias Harris with five. You know, PJ Tucky, we alluded to, we had two offensive boards. The Nets overall, other than, you know, that game was almost an aberration. In terms of their defensive rebound percentage, they're 27th in the league you know, since uh, February 11, that matchup that we were alluding to there, with 46.9% of their, as their total rebound percentage. So they're going to have to rebound the ball well. You know, and at the same time, you know, it's how they're going to do it. Team rebounding, gang rebounding, boxing out, all the little tangibles, making sure you get those long rebounds off the misses. Hopefully it's just the, the the engagement for those 48 minutes and just the desire and all of those little intangible things. Because if the Nets can win that rebounding battle or keep it somewhat even, we saw it against the 76ers in that narrow loss that we were talking about. It, it could go a long way to deciding if the, the, who gets the result out of that particular game. 
Yeah, and in that matchup, the Nets had 12 offensive rebounds. So important for them to kind of take advantage of sometimes a lackadaisical Sixers team. Obviously, Joel is a monster, but... You know, maybe you can catch some hustle boards. And I think that's something that the Nets need to do. Every area where the Nets can generate not an advantage or even just maintain a level of balance with hustle is going to be huge in the series because they're obviously outmatched from a talent and experience perspective. But there are areas where they can just be the grittier team. Now, Nick, in terms of more strengths and weaknesses, unless you have any final storylines. Uh, no, I'm good on storylines. I think we touched on them all. We'll probably get some more as the series kind of goes through as well. Yeah, I think I'll piggyback on what you sort of said with the coaching sort of thing, you know, Jacques Vaughn, you know, in terms of all the ups and downs that he sort of had throughout the season and he's gotten from the Nets fan base on Twitter and, and everywhere else. And then Doc Rivers, I think there's probably a greater storyline for him. But in terms of the Nets' strengths and weaknesses, the one strength I wanted to point to was when they shoot well, things go well. Yeah. When they have shot 38% or more since the trade, they are 7-3. and three. And in some of those games they lost, I think one of them was against the Bucks, one of them was against the Heat or something like that. So it's going to go well. If the Nets shoot well, they will likely go a long way to winning. Now, are you going to get a, a Joe Harris 69 from three performance? Because, look, they, they shot 13 to 40 uh, in that last game that we were alluding to. And, you know, Mikhail was good, but Cam wasn't great. DFS wasn't great. It was essentially just Mikhail and Joe that were, were doing the work from, from the perimeter. So I think it's going to be, if the Nets can shoot the ball well, Nick, if we see 38% plus, we might see a W. Yeah, it's going to be huge. And it's really looking at Dorian Finney-Smith. There's going to be a lot of open threes for him. He's going to be the guy that's left open. Can he knock down those shots? That's going to be huge. You mentioned Cam Johnson. He's been up and down. Spencer Dinwiddie's been another guy that has not been really good from three since joining the Nets, rejoining the Nets. He needs to hit those spot-up looks, and it just puts that much pressure on the Sixers, who are going to probably keep Joel Embiid in a lot of drop. You know, I don't anticipate him coming out unless things get really crazy and spicy for the Nets. Think there's going to be opportunities for them to get pull up threes, get good looks from the perimeter. It's all about knocking them down. Nick, do you think that in saying that, you know, the Royce v DFS sort of discussion, do you think Royce should play some extended minutes, maybe even a little bit more than Dorian Finney Smith? Because the difference and importance over, you know, tangible defense, tangible offense. I think you could make an argument that Royce is three point shooting. And again, Royce is not, he's not. Steph Curry, Joe Harris, or whoever else you want to throw in there. But he's certainly performed in that department of the game much better than we've seen from DFS, even though Dorian Finney-Smith's defense and strength might be important uh, against you know the likes of Joel Embiid on switches and stuff. But I still back Royce in a little bit there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think Royce also, you know, on the catch and shoot, he can also, you know, kill a closeout. You know, he can dribble the ball, drive inside, hit clocks for a new, find the next passer. He's a great connector offensively. I think ideally, Dorian Finney-Smith is knocking down his threes like he did, la I think it was last year for Dallas in the playoffs where he had some insane he had like eight. Yeah, he had, yeah, I think he had eight. I remember like tweeting that out as soon as he came to us. And I, I think he was against the Jazz, uh, I believe, or someone, someone like that. Might but have been I was against like, the Suns. Yeah, Jazz or Suns. I can't remember which team it was, but yeah, it who knows? Maybe the lights become brighter and we also see DFS get a nice little tan. That, that's, I'd, I'd be more than happy to be wrong about it, but I do have my doubts. Yeah, I think I would prefer Dorian Finney-Smith's um, rebounding and defense and overall length and just kind of his grit out there in comparison to Royce in this matchup in certain ways. But if he's being a net negative offensively and just a guy that they're le leaving wide open and he's 0-5 from three... You have to go to Royce. You have to because of what he's done and what he can bring offensively, especially if you're struggling on that end of the floor. Yeah, you alluded to like just Royce probably being a better, more complete basketballer yep. right now. DFS might have the high defensive upside, high defensive talent, but how much is that taking? How much of that is negligible in comparison to Royce and some of his? decent enough defense and we've sort of seen him go pretty well against the the sort of big boys in, in a lot of stretches as well so it'll be something to watch and you know Jacques Bond certainly have to watch it as well and I know that we will be watching it too I think both guys end up getting a lot of minutes I think you know the rotation is going to be short and Royce is going to be a guy that Vaughn leans on which he has in the past and it, Royce could be the guy that closes out the game as well no, definitely. And I, given how well he has performed, and I've said this in the pod, I've said this on Twitter, I'm more than happy to take my words on how well Royce O'Neill has done. And I hope he can continue that when the games uh, matter even more. And that is now come the postseason. But in terms of another strength, Nick, I wanted to throw out the defense. This is via Nets man up. Over the last 18 games, 
I think I might have mentioned this one on the last pod as well, but I wanted to hear your response to it. When Clack Spence, Cam J, and Mikael Bridges share the floor together, the Nets have the first uh, first in net rating and first in defensive rating and second in E field goal percentage against. They've been insane. I think that's about a month sort of sample size. Obviously, DFS is not in that lineup. It's a four-man lineup. Any thoughts, I guess, on how you feel about the Nets' defense being a strength and especially those four as a combination? Yeah, I think the starting unit, you know, obviously I don't know the number with DFS or Royce being swapped in, but I'm sure it's still pretty good. I think is definitely been a plus. I think you can see the difference in the starters and the bench unit, especially defensively when the Nets have put out lineups with, you know, Joe Harris and Seth Curry. You know, those guys not good defensively can be attacked. Even Dayron Sharp has his struggles defensively. So that's going to be a plus that they're able to have such a, a good unit defensively on the floor almost at all times. So that's that's definitely something to kind of keep an eye on and see if they're able to maintain that throughout the series. Obviously, going against some great half-court weapons in Joel Embiid and James Harden makes that more difficult than your typical matchup. Definitely. It'll be intriguing to see how how things are, are maneuvered in terms of those sort of lineups. And, and I think that the Nets do have a lot of strengths there. And as a lot of people were sort of saying, the Nets with their length, you know, the, the, everyone sort of thought that they're going to be this team that's going to dominate defensively. And we saw dominant-ish stretches, but they haven't been able to put it all together as a five-man cohesive unit, four-man units here and there, two-man units here and there, three-man units here and there, guys having individual performances. You know, Nick Claxon being a defensive player of the year candidate. So, Defense is really going to matter. And, and I think limiting the, the Sixers to like 100 or less, 101 points in that last matchup, if they can keep that sort of mark to 105-ish, then and the Nets hit their three ball, then I think that it's it might be simplistic, but I think the Nets have a good shot. Yeah, it's going to be huge, I think, from a half-court perspective of knocking down threes. Like, that's just going to be an area where the Nets need to knock down shots. And I think also in the mid-range. You know, we know the Nets don't necessarily love the mid-range, at least the coaching staff, but some of the players do. That's going to be an area where there's going to be opportunities. As we mentioned, if Embiid is in drop, can Mikel cook? You know, I, I also think in terms of their defenders, they don't necessarily have that perfect guy to put on Mikel Bridges in their starting lineup, but we'll save that for matchups. For me, in terms of strength, something I think that could benefit the Nets is they're a substantially faster team. Like, if you just look at the athletes across the board, the Sixers are rolling out a pretty slow lineup. You know, P.J. Tucker, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, James Harden, they're all probably bottom half of the league in terms of speed for their position. Yeah, and that's what's worked a couple of times in the KD Kyrie iterations, the, the, KD said after the game, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to move the ball. We wanted to get it out in transition. wanted to put the pressure on them. And the Nets can do that. You know, with Spencer Dimwitty at the helm, you know, Mikel can handle a little bit. Clax can run the floor. I think it's going to be about those opportunities and, and how they can utilize them and how many they can get. You know, getting those stops, getting the boards, and then getting out and, and moving it quickly. Sometimes Spencer can be a little bit laborious and sort of, you know, hang out with the ball a little bit, bring it up in like five or six seconds. It's just like, but the, the Nets are going to have to be engaged in every single possession if they want to get this win. And that means pushing the pace a little bit more because in postseason matchups in the playoffs half court matters so much more and the opportunities that you do get you know in in the open court you know how you utilize them and how effective you can be can be you know a big way to get little advantages yeah it's definitely substantially harder to get fast break points in the playoffs but there still will be opportunities just given some of the advantage the nets have in this matchup and just some of the players on the sixers that might be caught sleeping and i think that's going to be huge i also think it's going to be huge for the nets to lock in you know you might not think they get transition opportunities but there's going to be opportunities for the Sixers. The Nets need to get back and not give up those looks and be ready to set up. And that means maybe not getting as many offensive boards, but making sure that you're playing the best defense possible. Yeah, I think you will allow like clacks to get the offensive boards and then everyone else just sort of like push back and then sort of cover him because I, I, I back clacks to sort of use his pace, use his strike length to, to get back quick enough to you know match Joel Embiid or whoever else there around the win because he's, as I alluded to, I've been really impressed with his conditioning this entire season and it hasn't dropped off whatsoever. So it's certainly going to be a, a battle, Nick. You know, we'll be looking at fast break points. You know, we look at every single little thing at every goddamn matchup. So when it comes to the postseason matchups, every Every little thing will matter, and that includes the the half court as well as the open court. 
Yeah, I think that's another strength and weakness. I think the Sixers have a substantial advantage there just because of the experience and, you know, the guys they have. Like having a guy that's elite in the post is such an advantage for, you know, postseason basketball at times when it's Joel Embiid, who can score for all three levels and also make the passes you need. It's just how can the Nets generate that type of advantage offensively on their end of the floor when the Sixers are going to do it, not to say with ease, but with comfort. Yeah, tough shot making is probably the stat that matters, or not the stat, the skill that matters the most when it comes to the postseason. It's yeah. just as, as simple as that. And the Nets have that in some sort of space. Like Spencer can do it a little bit. Cam can do it a little bit. Mikhail can do it maybe a little bit more. But they don't have Jill Embiid, Kevin Durant, Luka Doncic, these sort of guys. And you can maybe make an argument that James Harden can do that. Maybe not anymore, but he certainly has been able to do it in the past. So certainly something that will make the the, the, the Sixers a substantially better team in terms of generating offense. And as we alluded to, the Nets have, have struggled at times to do that. But if McCall can have a, a crazy night for efficiency and hit that mid-range and just find his spots in, in the right way and, and show, showcase his three-level scoring, then you know that could also be a, a key indicator and a key driver to net success. Yeah, it really could. And I think also just looking at the Sixers, like one advantage they have, as you've kind of mentioned with the shot makers, is just they have more guys that can kind of go off. Joel can drop 50. You know, as much as we've talked about Harden having postseason struggles, he can be good in the beginning of the series and drop 30. You know, you look at Tobias Harris could even drop a 20-point game. Yeah, I believe he had some decent games against the Nets in their previous playoff matchup not too long ago. Tyrese Maxey, a guy that can get really high as well. So it's going to be important to kind of just keep them under control and make sure you react if someone is catching fire. You know, at times we've complained about Jacques Vaughn not reacting quick enough when somebody is finding their rhythm and trying to disrupt their game. And obviously the main goal is to disrupt Joel Embiid, but that doesn't mean one of these other Sixers players can't beat you. Exactly. And uh, alluding to the half-court offense, according to Cleaning the Glass, the, the Sixers are third best in the NBA when it comes to offensive rating, 118.3, which is a, a really, really good number. So half-court offense is something where the Sixers do shine, and it's going to have their work cut out for them. Yeah, and the Sixers are going to want to slow down the pace. They don't really care as much about transition. They're happy to play the half-court game because they feel like that's where they have the clear advantage, and statistically, they do. Exactly. Um, in terms of, should we get to more matchups, Nick? Yeah. Any other strengths and weaknesses? Uh, we could probably keep going, but I think matchups are more important. So I guess the big one is we spoke Embiid versus Clax. We probably discussed that a, a little bit. In terms of other players, you know, Bridges on Harden, is it DFS on Harden? Like, who is it on Maxi? Who's the guy sort of guarding Tucker and in the corner sort of roaming a little bit? Who's Spencer going to take? Where do you feel the matchups will likely lie? You know, in terms of what we saw last, you know, Mikael Bridges spent a, a decent majority of time on, on James Harden. DFS did, you know, a, a little bit as well, but he didn't have as much success. You know, he sort of actually, James Harden, you know, toyed with the Dorian Finney Smith a little bit. At least that's what the stats show. So in terms of the other matchups, Nick, how are you feeling? Where's your head at? Yeah, I think uh, you kind of rotate guys on James similar that you would if you had more matchups for Duel Embiid, but obviously, you know, Clax is going to go on Embiid. And I think, you start Mikel and Harden because I think Mikel will pick him up full court. And that's going to be something, as we talked about, to kind of disrupt his game a little bit. Um, I think I like Doreen Finney-Smith on P.J. Tucker because he can provide that help to Clax and actually be a level of a threat to Embiid to block a shot or just use his length. And then I think Spencer can go on DeAnthony Melton because I believe he's going to start for them. And then when it's Tyrese Maxey, you know, you could switch that up and you could put Spence on him. And then I think uh, you leave Cam Johnson for, you know, Tobias Harris. And I think yeah, that's, I, a, that's a fine matchup for him. I think all those matchups do make a lot of sense. And uh, a lot of people were sort of saying in, in, in mentions and stuff and, and talking to me in terms of just looking forward that in terms of like bench things and can you throw out like, a lot of people were saying, like, Edmund Sumner for five-minute spurts picking up James Harden full court. I'm like, I like that, but I don't think Jacques Vaughn has the the courage to do it. Like, that's something yeah. that I'm... I don't think some... I'm not sure Sumner's going to be in the playoff rotation. I mean, I don't mind the idea if that's, like, something you're just going to throw out there for a little bit. Like, I also like maybe the idea of, like, throwing Daron Sharp on Joel Embiid for a few minutes just to use all his fouls. Yeah. <laughs> really be physical, because there's actually been possessions where... Daron Sharp has pushed Joel Embiid to the floor, rebounding for the basketball, and like 
Sharp will get cooked in a couple minutes, but maybe you can afford a few possessions here or there where you can kind of take advantage of that because we know Clax cannot play the entire game. There's also a chance Clax get into foul trouble because Joel Embiid is such, you know, a, a foul merchant at times. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to sort of see if, if what we do see from the lesser the the sort of matchups. We what we sort of discussed there it seems likely, but like what's going to happen in terms of the the bench rotation? You know, is Spencer going to be left out there? How are they going to stagger Mikhail and Spencer as your two sort of best guys? How many minutes is Clax going to get? He's going to completely align with Joel Embiid because I don't think he has. Can he play 40 minutes like Joel Embiid is likely to play? I can't remember the last time Nick Claxton's ever done that, but this might be the time to sort of do it. So I think the the one-on-one rate that, um, matchups, as you alluded to, seems most likely. We will see points of variation here and there. The Nets do like to switch, and whether they stick to those principles, uh, how much they stick to those principles in, in this matchup will be interesting to sort of see. But the other little things, you know, when it's you know Maxi coming on and it's Maxi Say and Seth Curry, you two sort of league guards out there. I do not like that whatsoever. I think Maxi will absolutely cook the hell out of Seth, even though Seth has some good numbers against the Sixers. But do you balance it out by keeping? Sumner there? Do you keep a Spencer Dimwini out there and sort of align those minutes so you can cover Seth the, a little bit because he might be our worst defensive player and, and that was shown not just in, in this season but also in last year's postseason despite some of the buckets that he did get. You know, the the bench rotation and the matchups there and the minutes there are going to be I don't think they're going to be the be-all and end-all but they're going to mean something. Yeah, I mean, whoever they, they put Joe Harris, they put Seth Curry out there, they put Daron Sharp out there he's going to get targeted. They're going to get targeted. You know, it's going to be James Harden hunting for that switch and trying to go one-on-one against that guy. And he's going to probably cook those guys. You know, he's not the same Houston James Harden, but those are great matchups for him. And I think that's going to be somewhat of the issue. And even if you try to, I think you're going to try to hide those guys on PJ Tucker, if you can, if he's still on the floor, but the Sixers are also going to play lineups without PJ Tucker, where they, they might lean into offense a little bit more. Maybe they sub in Tyrese Maxey because they feel pretty good about the size they already have and, you know, shift Tobias Harris down to the floor. Now there's now it's a bigger threat and now it's going to be interesting. I think McDaniels is another guy for Philly. That's going to be interesting. He hasn't necessarily played his best basketball there, but he does have a skill set can provide a real defensive wing. And that's where it kind of gets to the net side. Can Mikel Bridges eat against some of their starters in terms of their defensive players? You know, D'Anthony Melton's a good defender, but after that, I'm not sure a lot of those guys match up well with Mikel. Yeah. And what is the whistle that Mikel Bridges yeah. gets on a PJ Tucker? Because he's different to Kevin Durant in that he is a bit more of a foul merchant and not to the extent of say Joel Embiid or Luka Doncic, but he, he, he knows how to get the whistle a little bit more than, than KD does. KD's a bit purer in, in the way that he likes to attack the game. So that could actually be an advantage to Mikhail in terms of, you know, utilizing maybe PJ Tucker's over eagerness, but at the same time, there's going to be the home court whistle and those sort of things. Yep. And then Spencer not getting his whistle that he's likely to get. And, and that could affect him and, and be a, a mini sort of thing that could disrupt him a little bit. So, yeah, the officiating will play some sort of a part. It didn't, it didn't in the last matchup. You know, hopefully it's at least somewhat of an advantage for the Nets. Yeah, and then we're looking back to that February 11th game, 30 free throw attempts for the Sixers, 13 for the Nets. That's that's a difference in the game right there, especially in a three-point matchup. So it's going to be huge. Like you mentioned, the home whistle, the away whistle. In that Buck series against P.J. Tucker, the home and away whistle was drastically different. It was to the point where P.J. Tucker was allowed to play football in Milwaukee and was fouling out of games in the first half against the Nets or being forced to the bench because of the amount of fouls he was racking up, just off ball. Yeah, you'd better believe I've got those bashing videos saved in my phone for when Mikael Bridges isn't getting those calls because yeah. it happened to KD. I can very much see it happening to a guy like Mikael Bridges as well, but hopefully it doesn't, and hopefully we are we are wrong about that. And yeah, the as you alluded to, the free throws there was the big number why the, the Sixers probably got the win. The Nets had like 15, 17 more shooting possessions, so they should have won the game. You know, that, that's happened to, to the Nets a lot in seasons past where their offensive efficiency has just been so good that they've just been able to win games where they've had 10, 15 less shots. But if that happens again, I'll back the Nets in. This is the sort of game, the last sort of game is like a 50-50. Five times out of 10, the Sixers sort of win it. Five times out of 10, the Nets sort of win it. So... 
I don't know if we get a direct correlation from that and, and if we obviously we take some things from it. But yeah, there was a, a lot of good stuff from it and including, you know, the whistle and rebounding and all those different little things as well. Yeah, and I think also the whistle for James Harden is going to be huge. You know, he doesn't get the same amount of calls in the playoffs that he gets during the regular season. And I think in that game, he shot over 10 free throws. So how he's officiated is going to be very important. And kind of him and Spencer, you know, those are two guys that have a lot of officiating variation where free throws can impact their ability to be aggressive or the consistency they attack the rim with. So that's something to kind of keep an eye on. The refing crew is going to be important on the road and at home. Yeah, and the officiating from the NBA crew this year is left a little bit to be desired in, in, in big matchups. Especially match for ups. the Nets. Yeah, it's just sort of like seasons past for the Nets. But in, in saying that, Nick, any final matchup thoughts before we get to our X Factors and final predictions? Yeah, I think it's going to be important for the quote-unquote other guys, the non-Mikel Bridges and Spencer Dinwiddie's, to find ways to attack matchups when they have advantages. You know, if you get a small on you, like Cam Johnson, there might be times where you need to go to work. You know, you might need to find, you know, maybe attack James Harden more. He's not a good defender. We know that, and he can be really lazy defensively, and that's a guy that maybe you go out a little bit. And I think also there's still, like, potential for trying to get Joel Embiid in foul trouble, you know, force him to work on the end of the floor and just constantly make him move and jump and just, he's a huge human. He exerts a lot of energy just to go up for a rebound. And if you can force him to move as much as possible, that's going to benefit your team given the athleticism and youth you have on your side. No doubt. On to the X factors. Yeah. I think um, you've touched on one already, and this is kind of, you know, an easy one for every playoff series, but three point shooting, you know, three point shooting is always a huge factor for every playoff series because variation can dictate a win or a loss. If the new, the nets, as you mentioned, shoot over 38%, good chance they can win. But the same side for the Sixers, they're knocking down their threes and Joel and eating in the post. I don't even know what you do. Yeah. The nets are not going to win that game. It's, a, <laughs> yeah. it's as simple as that. It's a, it's a make or miss league. There's sometimes yeah. the, 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 we've spoken for 45, 50 minutes here, but there's sometimes a, a simplicity to basketball, make shots, you know, play well, play good defense. But, you know, that doesn't make for, for good podcasting or good analysis. we we got to dive in a little bit deeper. But some other uh, X factors, Nick, and this is via Brooklyn Nets 85. Didn't when he's playmaking, he thinks the Nets are better when he's getting 10-plus assists compared to when he's shooting 15 times. I looked into, like, the stats when Spencer did when he gets 10-plus assists. And the Nets are better marginally in terms of wins and losses. Didn't necessarily get to find, like, you know, the 15-plus shots as well. But I just think tangibly they do look better and if Spencer's taking 15 shots and he's getting like 20 points or, or something like that compared to 10 assists and Mikhail's eating, Joe's eating, DFS is eating, Royce is eating, just the team looks better overall. Clax is rebounding. He said, yeah, Mikhail as well must average 27 plus on efficiency, on decent efficiency to be competitive and the, making the open threes with DFS and Cam J. And speaking of Mikhail Bridges, I've had a couple of stats on, on Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges. Mikhail Bridges has taken more pull-up jumpers than anyone in the league since the All-Star break, and he has the best field goal percentage of anyone in the top 10, and that field goal percentage is 48.2 on 220 attempts. That's pretty goddamn good if you ask me, Nick. That's pretty goddamn good. Yeah, and if you remove probably the last week of the season, it's even higher. It's over 50%. So that's incredible stuff, and that's going to be there for him until the Sixers make an adjustment, which they might in the series if, you know, Mikel's able to go to work and get enough buckets in that area. I think Cam Johnson is more of a question mark. We've seen him be aggressive in the pull-up area, and then other times we've seen him not and not even look to take those shots. And in the playoffs, you kind of have to take whatever the defense is giving you, and if they're free buckets, you got to capitalize on them. Via stay, uh, steps, Stephen Pridgen. I'm sorry if I'm getting this name wrong, but he provided a pretty good stat on Cam Johnson. Post All Star game, Cam Johnson 16.8 points per game, 56.8% from two, and a 62.1 true shooting percentage. Uh, in different sample sizes, he's racked up more field goal attempts, free throw attempts, rebounds, assists, steals, and 90 more points on two dribble pull ups. He's shooting 62.2%, and on shots greater than 10, 10, uh, 10 feet, sorry, 60%. So some of the stats there, Nick, are indicating that Cam can do a little bit. Yeah, I think it's more so about him actually doing it. You know what I mean? I think there's games where he's just not aggressive, and we've talked about it. Maybe that's a coaching staff saying, you know, three or layup. But when he's, I think I look to that Atlanta Hawks game, the Nets lost at the buzzer to Trey Young. Uh, I thought Cam Johnson had a really good game from pull up and was just eating the open space. And there's open space unless teams are switching. So that's going to be there for him. And the Nets could use him to use a couple 20 point games from Cam Johnson. 
Yeah, big time. Uh, big, 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 big time. Uh, also like the, his driving too. I think that's another area where he's, you know, using all three levels of score is going to be huge for him because there's going to be more attention on Spencer and Mikel. Yeah, especially in in drop and you know, getting some fouls on Joel Embiid here yeah. and there, not not showing that aggression. You know, it's it's a, a little bit sort of reductive to just go be aggressive, but it, all the players say it, so it's got to mean something. The other player that I had Nick is Seth Curry because our guy Cipher uh, had a pretty good stat. Seth Curry against the Sixers while on the Nets in three games has averaged twenty three point three points, two point six assists, and shockingly two point three steals. On 53.3% from the field, 46.7% from three, and nearly 94% free throw shooting. That's an insane stat. Yeah, it really is. And I think uh, defensively, you mentioned the steals. He's more engaged in those games. And he's not a talented defensive player, but engagement and effort are a huge part of defense. And if you know Seth can do that and be able to kind of just hold his own defensively, you mentioned the shooting numbers are great. And they need one of their big three-point shooters to get hot off the bench and have a good series. You know, be it Seth Curry, be it Joe Harris, one of those guys, if they could shoot 50% from three for the series, maybe even both of them, that would be very, very important for the Nets to have a chance to steal this one or even just push it six or seven. Any other final X factors, Nick, before we get to our ultimate predictions? Yeah, I think health is always an X factor. I think uh, the Sixers team, you know, we mentioned Joel Embiid has dealt with injuries. James Harden has dealt with injuries. You know, how are those guys able to maintain maintain health through a physical series and obviously having a huge workload all season long? I think other X factors is just the non-Joel Embiid players on the Sixers. Are they going to be good? Like James Harden, we've talked about a lot already, but Tobias Harris is a guy that has games where you're like, wow, he's pretty good. And then he has games where he's, scores like two points and doesn't do anything. Can PJ Tucker knock down his open threes or is that going to be just an easy guy to leave open? And, you know, De'Anthony Melton is kind of hot and cold offensively as well. And Tyrese Maxey is a hot and cold player who definitely can get super hot, but he also has games where he can go cold. So it's like, are those guys good? And obviously the Nets have a lot of question marks with their role players, but I think the Sixers do as well. Yeah, on both ends, it's going to take the collective to to get the the four wins that both teams are searching for. And at the end of the day, you know you can have Mikael Bridges put up forty five, but in that heat game, as you alluded to, the Nets did lose it. You know, Joel Embiid's had some outstanding performances in losses. So ultimately, the only stat that matters is the win, and it's going to take you know five to eight guys to to really sort of get that W. Yeah, another X factor, I think, too, is clutch offense, Um, more so for the Nets and the Sixers. We already know what they do in the half court. But as we talked about to start the show, can the Nets generate good offense late in the game? Are they going to be able to adapt to what the Sixers are throwing at them or are they going to continue to just struggle and look confused and disengaged late in the game and settle for long threes or bad shots? We will see, Nick. Time will tell. Yeah. Anything else for you in terms of X factors, Jack? No, I think we hit the nail on the head there, Nick. I think it's uh, it's prediction time. Yeah, prediction time. Um, you go first on this one. You know me. I'm always the more pessimistic one. I'm thinking six is in five. Uh, yeah. I, I think the, the Nets might get one of the first two games, but I don't think they'll get any anything else. Yeah, I think they will have an opportunity to win one game in Philadelphia. Game one seems to be an option. You know, we talked about it. You know, they won it last time. They kind of snuck up on the Sixers, just came in with good energy, was able to, were able to knock down some big shots. Um, The Nets will probably have an opportunity to win game three or game four. That's what happened in the previous series. There was a, a chance to win. And if they can find a way to win those two games, I think they'll be able to push it, you know, six or seven. But if they're not, then it's going to be Sixers and five. And the Sixers are just, as I mentioned, a more talented team and a more experienced team. And, there's not really a ton the Nets can do if the Nets are if the Sixers are playing their best basketball, the Nets are going to lose the game. Yeah, I've had some pretty poor takes and predictions throughout the Brooklyn Buzz tenure, but if this is one that I am completely wrong on, then I'll happily take that and eat all the humble pies in the world. If the Nets get this win, man, oh, bro, we are. I'm going to be relentless. We're going to be podcasting every second of the day in the northern and southern hemisphere about how good the Nets are. Um, I'm excited for a Nick- live stream now. <laughs> yeah, we'll just do some live streams on wherever platform we get. But I'm still excited for a Nick, despite the fact that I'm somewhat pessimistic. You know, I'm, there's, there's something about this Nets team that, that could surprise me and could surprise us overall. I think also there's a lot to take away moving forward into the next chapter of the Nets, you know, deciding on the offseason moves, you know, how you can, you know, analyze a player, kind of scout a player and like, what can he be in playoff basketball because of how different it really is. Now, another question for you, Jack, what needs to happen for the Nets to win this series? 
Well, the three-point shooting needs to be on, the defense needs to be on, and I think the rebounding needs to be solid enough. You know, the, we sort of spoke about that as reductive and simplistic at points throughout the episode, but at the end of the day, I think that's the way that they can get the job done. You know, is Mikhail going to be... If, if Mikhail can be the second best player in this series and comfortably the second best player and have games where he is the best player, then I think that's going to go a long way as well. You know, you're, you're taking as far as your superstars will take you. We've yeah. said that in plenty of times in the KD Kyrie iteration. If Mikael Bridges can have, you know, 50-40-90 or 50-40-85 or 50-35-85, something like that across the series, gets the efficiency going again after having a little bit of a lull, then I think the Nets are going to be in a good spot. Yeah, I think that and also, like you said, the three-point shooting. If they can shoot, you know, 40% or just if in their losses shoot really poorly, but in their wins shoot really well, that'll have a chance where it can just be these huge shooting variations or shooting variants where one game they're shooting 50% and the other game they're shooting 20%. Save all your three-point makes for certain games and that might be enough. You might not even play well the entire series, but if you can play well for four out of the seven games, you have a chance to win. And we know the the mental pressure that's on the Sixers and all that's riding on this for them and how nothing's really riding on it for the Nets. You know, nothing's nothing's going to determine, you know, if anyone's getting a contract or if they're getting they're losing their job on the Sixers end that whole core can be broken up this summer if things don't go well. So the Nets can get under their skin early, knock down threes. Mikel Bridges can ascend to another level, and then all the role players can just do their job and play at an average to a really good level. I think the Nets have a chance to surprise some people. But that's a lot. That's a big ask. It's a big ask, but bigger things have happened, Nick. For sure. Anything else, Jack, before we get out of here? Nah, I'm, I'm riding this one, Nick. I'm just... I'm wanting some fun basketball. I'm wanting some, you know, the storylines. I'm wanting a bit of the energy. I wanted a bit of, bit of biff, a bit of grit, bit of um, aggression, all the the fun sort of stuff. And hopefully we we're in for a longer series than both you and I think. Yeah, uh, the tenacity of the playoffs is amazing, and especially when you play the same team multiple days in a row, it just it gets old quick for the guys on the court, and they're gonna they're gonna bring it, and it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be interesting to see who kind of steps up to Joel Embiid. We know Clax isn't shy about doing that, but like you said, fun series. Hopefully, it goes longer, and I'm sure we'll be dropping some more content before Game One kicks off. Big thanks everybody for listening. Check the buzz on all streaming platforms. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.